I said at the end of last week's message, we've come to the most beautiful word in the Bible, the word that we see at the beginning of chapter 3, verse 21. But in the, the face of all human sin and evil and the face of death and God's judgment, we hear this word, but God has done something and what he has done is this message of the Gospel, this good news. The Gospel has to be bad news before it's good news. If the Gospel is about how God has saved us from our sin, then first it has to tell us about our sin and make us aware of our great need of his mercy. Uh, And that's what makes the Gospel then such good news. But God has done something. In the last two chapters, we have heard the heart of the problem, the human problem laid out to us. Our problem is not the environment, not lack of education or opportunity, it's not bad legislation, it's not uh, that we haven't learned to leave the old ways behind so we can progress into a better future. The human problem is a heart problem. It's a self-inflicted disease in which our hearts are turned away from God and onto ourselves and onto creation where we seek to get from creation and from ourselves the things that only God himself can give. And it's a disease that produces the symptoms of selfishness and greed, of conflict between people and conflict in communities. Uh, It produces the symptoms of sexual immorality and the celebration of sin in our lives and in our society. And because it's a heart problem, it can never and will never be solved by external human means, by laying down laws that uh, affect external behaviour but don't actually change the heart, the inclinations and the affections of our hearts. And because it's a problem that infects all human beings, it's something that can't be fixed by human beings. All our attempts at self-salvation only result in putting us in a worse position than before. Because not only have we not solved the heart problem, but we've talked ourselves into thinking that we've solved our problem and we're doing a good job at it and so we've become proud and arrogant. No, it's a problem that must be fixed by the intervention of God. He needs to reach in from outside into our hearts and make that change. So then the change happens from the inside out. We saw back in 1 verse 18 this statement, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. The ultimate problem is that we are under God's wrath. This heart problem we have isn't just about us. It's not just that we are sick, but our sins have separated us from God, as Isaiah tells us. 
our refusal to glorify God, to thank God for who he is, is a slap in the face. It's cosmic treason. It's the rejection of his fatherhood and a refusal to live as his children. So it's not just heart surgery that needs to happen. It also needs to be a reconciliation. It needs to be a relational surgery, a relational repair. The wrath of God is the problem and the solution to this problem is the righteousness of God. And I've been saying uh, the righteousness of God is the fact that God lives in right relationships. The only one able and qualified to take our wrongly ordered relationships with ourselves and creation and one another and to bring us back into rightly ordered relationships with God and with one another is God himself. He's the only one who can do it. So in Jesus we see God doing on our behalf what we are unable to do ourselves. We've been seeing how the righteousness of God was made known in the law. The law shows forth the character of God but in doing so it exposes our character. And as we saw last week, the purpose of the law is to bring knowledge of sin, not salvation from sin. So that's where we've come and then we come to this word but. But the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Where the the revelation of God's righteousness in a legal sense through the law was unable to justify us, as well as the fact that it was only available for those under the law, in other words to the Jews, there is this other revelation of God's righteousness, this righteousness that was manifested in Jesus and made available through faith. And Paul uses different words there when he talks about the wrath of God being revealed but then this righteousness of God being manifested. If something is revealed you, you can see it and it could be at a distance. You, know, you have some knowledge of it. But when something is manifested it is made a concrete reality and you can see it and you can touch it and you can receive it and participate in it. So verse 23 tells us all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. A very well known verse. It's a verse that you'll see in many evangelistic tracts to make this statement about everyone's need for Jesus. It was one of Billy Graham's favourite verses. Probably whatever message you hear by Billy Graham you'll hear him quoting Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And it may be that we've heard it so often that we, we've stopped to think about what it is actually saying. All have sinned. Who is the all who have sinned and fall short of the glory of God? And who are the all 
who are justified freely by his grace in Jesus Christ. Well, the all here is not meant in the sense of every individual person without exception, but rather all people, all peoples without distinction. Now, it's certainly true that every individual without exception has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We know this to be true from the rest of the scriptures and we saw that earlier in chapter 3. However, we know that not every individual without exception will end up standing before God justified. There will be those who will remain outside of the kingdom of God because they've persisted in their rebellion and rejected the revelation of God's truth that's been given to them, whether it's in the word or whether it's in creation or in their own consciences. We've been seeing that Paul is at pains to to make it very clear that it's Jews and Gentiles who are in the same boat. Ethnicity and nationality and religious background have no no bearing on a person's relationship with God. And so his point is there is no difference between Jew and Gentile, between these two different peoples. So all, meaning all people of all nationalities, have sinned. And all, meaning people of all nationalities, have only one way in which they may be justified from that sin freely by grace through Jesus Christ. There's not one way of justification for some people and another way of justification for other people. It can only come from Christ. Now in our world today, that sounds like bad news to many people. It sounds exclusive to say No other religion can provide salvation. It is through Jesus alone and through grace alone and through faith in Jesus alone. It's a scandal to say that today. But in the first century, the scandal, especially for the Jews, was that this statement was too inclusive. For 2,000 years salvation had been of the Jews. If you wanted to know the true God, the God of the Jews, you had to come and you had to join the Jews and become a Jew in order to know the true and living God. And so we have stories of people travelling from the ends of the known world to come and visit Israel so that they could meet the true and living God. But now, because of Jesus, this salvation has been opened up to those of every tribe and tongue and nation. It's amazingly inclusive. It's not exclusive. Did you notice in our reading that uh, Paul uses a different order when he talks here about Jesus? He says, uh, this is in verse 24, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. In verse 22, he just uses Jesus Christ 
why, why the swap? It's not just an arbitrary swap. He is emphasising that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. His office as Messiah. Salvation being offered to Gentiles didn't take away from the fact that Jesus was and is the Jewish Messiah, the one promised in the scriptures, the Jewish scriptures. He is the king of the Jews. He is descended from David. So he is Christ. He is the Messiah, Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, Jesus. But while the Jews thought that their Messiah would just come for them to set up a kingdom just for them to include and contain just them, the reality is this Jewish Messiah came for the whole world to gather into the kingdom people from all tribes and nations and tongues, that he might be Lord of all. So he's not just the Jews' Messiah, he is the world's Messiah. Paul says in this verse, verse 23, that all have sinned and fall short. What is sin? Well, he's not actually saying here that sin is falling short. Uh, You may have heard people define it in that way, like an arrow that falls short of its target or the, the little track bridge to life where we're standing on one cliff and God is over on the other cliff and there's this big chasm between us and we're trying as hard as we can to, to jump over the gap but we always fall short and never make it. That idea of falling short is taken from this verse but is that actually what Paul is saying? Notice that he says we have sinned and fallen short. He doesn't say we have sinned which is falling short. Falling short isn't the sin, it's the product of sin. It's because we are sinners that we fall short of God's glory. If sin were simply falling short, then the solution would be for God to energise and empower us so we can just jump a little bit further to get over that gap, so we can hit the target. But because sin is a relational problem, it can't be fixed simply by getting a better aim or a bit more energy. That's why verse 24 tells us that the problem is fixed. We are justified by grace as a gift, not through our own efforts, but through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. It has to be God who picks us up and takes us across the chasm to where he is. Now redemption is a word that was commonly used in the context of slavery, particularly in the Roman Empire. And it's something that would have been very familiar to the Gentile Romans and the Jewish Romans reading this verse, but it also would have been very familiar to the Jews who had the idea of redemption in their own culture. If you were a Roman and you hear the word redemption, uh, here's what you would have thought of. Slavery was all around you. A huge proportion of the Roman Empire uh, consisted of people who were slaves. 
and a number, amount, a fair amount of that slavery was actually a voluntary slavery. If you had a debt or some other kind of obligation, you might indenture yourself or a member of your family to work to pay off that debt. And so you would enter into a contract of slavery to the person who you owe. They would work with minimal pay or no pay until the debt was cancelled. And they were bound to that person as long as their debt was outstanding. Now, but if a benevolent friend or family member, and there are records of some philanthropists who just did this as an act of goodwill, if they came along and saw someone with this huge debt hanging over their head and they were bound to try and pay it off, but there was no hope that even in their lifetime they could pay off this debt. They would come and they would pay the debt on their behalf to set that person free. That paying off of the debt was called the ransom. The person would be free and this transaction was called redemption. But this was more about just cancelling the debt. It was about restoring relationships. See, a slave was torn away from their family. They would live in their master's house and they would be in bondage to their master to do whatever their master said. If they saw their family member out on the streets and their father or their brother said, hey, can you go and do this for me? They'd say, no, I can't. I'm not part of that family because I've been captured. I'm in bondage to my master. I can only do my master's will. So redemption would break that bondage and it would bring the freed slave back to their family, back into their right relationships, back into a place where they could now be themselves again and fulfil their responsibilities and their, their destiny in their humanity. So that's what the Romans would have thought when they hear this word redemption. What would the Jews have thought? Well, for the Jews, they would have known of their own laws about the kinsman redeemer. And these laws were laws about family obligation. Um, an example is the law that says if, if a man's brother dies and leaves his widow who doesn't have any children, the man is under obligation then to marry his brother's widow um, and to provide children so that she and the man who had died would have children to continue along the family line. We see a beautiful picture of this in operation in the book of Ruth. Ruth is a widow. She's not even a Jew. She's been adopted by her mother-in-law. Ruth is a widow and Boaz, who is a relative of Ruth's adopted mother-in-law Naomi, steps up to his responsibility to marry Ruth so that she may be part of a family, so that she may bear children and continue the family line. Boaz effectively paid the price, 
paid the ransom or the redemption price by taking her on as his wife and redeemed her. Not only did he redeem her, but he redeemed her family line because the whole point of the book of Ruth is to show how Ruth became the great-grandmother of King David. In effect, Boaz's actions had redeemed the family tree of King David himself. Imagine if Boaz had said, no, I'm not going to do that. There'd be no, no king, no David. Again, we see this is a, this is a deeply relational thing. It's about uh, restoring and about creating family. So whether you were a Roman or whether you were a Jew, you would get what Paul's talking about here. Jesus pays the price. He pays the ransom to break the bondage that we are under, to cancel the hopeless state that we're in in order to bring us into a family relationship where there is a hope and a future. So, if Jesus is the one who pays the price, the ransom, what is the price that he pays? And this is where the wonderful love of God is shown. What did God put forward to cancel the debt? Jesus himself. It's one thing to ransom a person out of slavery by paying some money, something that someone would only be able to do if they had some money to spare. It's another thing to actually offer yourself as the ransom, to actually take the place of the slave to give not only some or all of what you have, but to give your whole self so that the person can be set free. This is what has happened in the cross of Jesus. He didn't just pay a price from a distance. He paid with himself and entered into our situation to set us free. Where's... Ruth and Boaz, well it's not really them, it's just a painting of them in um, medieval clothes, but anyway. Here's what Peter says. If you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Occasionally I I read articles about the New Testament where people say um, there was this big battle in the early church between Paul and Peter. Uh, Paul was on about the Gentiles coming in and Peter was a stick in the mud 
he was there with James and they'll say, no, you've got to become a Jew first before you become a Christian. And uh, There was a confrontation between Paul and Peter over this issue. But uh, these scholars say, well, eventually Paul won and his version of Christianity dominated and Peter's version of Christianity fell to the wayside. I find that hard to believe because Peter's letters are here in the New Testament. And we actually see Peter here saying in different words really what Paul has expressed in Romans 3. We see that God the Father judges impartially and so we we cannot depend on our deeds to justify ourselves but instead we have to depend on him and the redemption he's accomplished. He tells us that we have been ransomed or redeemed and the price for our freedom has been paid, but not with gold or silver, but with Christ himself. He is the ransom price. Peter then uses the same word that Paul uses, this word manifested. Paul says the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Jesus says, He, Christ, was known before the foundation of the world but was made manifest in the last times or in recent times. Conveying the idea that what was known about before, or as Paul put it, the law and the prophets testify to it, has now become a reality in this world. It's no longer just an idea or a promise or a plan but flesh and blood reality in which God has acted concretely and definitively to make his righteousness a reality in the person of Jesus. And what's the result of this redemption, of Christ paying the price of himself? The result is our faith and hope are in God. In other words, the relationship has been restored. We are now seated, we are now related rightly to the Father. And instead of all of our our trust and confidence being in our old masters of sin and death and the devil, it's now in God Himself. When we speak of God as Redeemer, we must always think in these deeply personal, relational ways. He doesn't redeem us from a distance. The transaction isn't like when we pay a fine through the internet, which I've done a couple of times, but no, no party has any personal contact. There's someone at the other end, in fact there's a computer at the other end that just processes the payment and it's done impersonally and, and the fine is paid and the debt is cancelled. Redemption is when God himself says to us, you owe me this much, you owe me your whole life and now I am going to pay what you owe to me with my whole life. And because it's with my life that I pay this ransom to set you free, you are now irrevocably bound to me because not only have I bought you, not only do I own you, 
but the life that you have now is my life living in you. That's just the tip of the iceberg of the beauty of this idea of redemption. What took place at the cross is like a multifaceted diamond shining with the glory of God and his righteousness. And we've just looked at one of those facets here this morning, this idea of redemption. Next week, we'll zoom in to verse 25 and unpack what is meant by the word propitiation or, uh, as the NIV puts it, a sacrifice of atonement. This idea is, is something that goes to the very heart of what was taking place on that cross as Jesus hung there for us. And so over uh, the next three weeks, including Good Friday, we'll unpack uh, this, this passage in Romans chapter 3, uh, all these different aspects of what Christ has done for us to bring us to know the Father.